Well, good morning. We want to welcome everybody to Spruce Grove Community Church. So why don't we stand to our feet this morning as we prepare to worship God for the last time in 2017. Well, let's just lift our hands to the Lord and just say, Father, thank you so much for an amazing year. Thank you, Father, for all of your provision, for all those gifts you've given us, for family, for friends. God, just for your complete provision over our lives. And so, Father, today as we come into the house of God, we can truly say that you are a good God. And, Father, we choose to worship you this morning with our whole heart because you are so amazing. And so, Father, now we choose to do that in Jesus' name. So let's worship the Father. Lord, we think of the humble surroundings the first time you came, and we declare today your second coming will not be like the first. We declare that the earth will be filled with your praises. We declare that our mouths will be filled and our hearts will be filled, and you will be lifted up. So we lift you up today, Lord. We lift you up today. We lift you up today. We lift you up today, King of kings and Lord of lords. Glory, honor, power be to your name. Be exalted. Be exalted. Be exalted. Be exalted, Lord our God. Lord, we want to see you as you are. We received tokens, tokens, small but powerful revelations of who you are. But Lord, we say we want to see you seated on your throne. Jesus, resurrected Christ, be manifest. Holy Spirit, fill this place with the knowledge of the glory of the risen Christ. Unveil, unveil, unveil the beauty of this risen Lord, the only begotten Son of God. Open our eyes to see who the fullness of Him, who opened the eyes of the blind, who heals the ears, who destroys cancer. There is none like you. There is none like you. Peace to the world and goodwill towards men. So, Lord, I declare today over us your will, and it is for good things. Your will is for good things. Your desire is favorable toward us. You look upon us with love. You look upon us with longing. So, Lord, we respond to that longing and we say we want to enter your embrace and experience the depth of peace that the world cannot know. Peace. Peace to your souls. Just continue releasing yourself to the Lord. But we want to declare that this year, 2018, is a new year, not just chronologically, but it's a new year in the Spirit of God. 
And then this year, the people of God will rise up to say, we will have this man to rule over us. We will have Jesus Christ, this man, to rule over us. The church of God will say, we will come under the rod of the shepherd. We will declare Jesus the shepherd of our souls. We invite the manifestation of the administration of heaven. We say, let there be a new level of faith in the people of God that say, Holy Spirit in our midst, orchestrating divine encounters. So, Lord, we declare that this is a new year and our souls will long after you. And I want to declare that crossing into this new year, some of you experience the Lord in a new way. It's like in this last season, God's been excavating out of your life. You know, because you can't fill a full cup. It's already full. And so God has to remove in order to fill. And so he's been removing. He's been decreasing you. You're about to experience a new capacity to experience the Lord. So if you feel that's for you, just grab a hold of that right now and say, My soul will follow hard after you, Lord. And I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Amen. Amen. Chris, why don't you come up? Uh, You know, just as the ushers are coming, it was interesting. At one point, we were singing about the throne room of God. And it was so neat because uh, the image that kept coming to my head is, uh, I don't know if any of you, when you were younger, but years ago, there used to be these little tracks that people would often bring to your doors. They were kind of about that big. And they were comic book tracks. You know, I forget what they're called. Yeah, someone said it. Chick tracks. Anybody remember those? Those old tracks. Well, uh, there were a few Sundays back when I preached. And God took me on a little journey. And on that journey, he said, I want to show you where I actually was trying to touch your life when you were an unsaved person. And one of the pictures that he showed me was when I was about seven or eight years old after my parents had separated and I'd gone through a lot of heartache as a kid and I was living in a place called Briar and Court, which was not too far from West Edmonton Mall. But I remember these people would always come to our house and they would bring these little tracks, the chick tracks. And I would read them because I absolutely loved comics, right? Loved them. And so there was always an image of God. And the image of God was like he was on these stairs at the top with this white face with these lines through it and these lines here. And as soon as we started singing about the throne room of God, that was the picture I saw. And it was almost like this reminder of, do you see? I was touching you. Even when you were seven years old and you had no clue who I was. And you know what's so cool about this? This is bizarre and this is God. Is when he actually had given me that thought and that image, right? And that Sunday, I actually never did preach about that. But on the Monday or the Tuesday, I had to take my kids to school. Actually, I was taking Mally to school. And Mally got in the vehicle, and we started her up, and we started heading to her school. And as we were going to the school, I was looking in my rearview mirror, and I was like, what is on my wiper, on the rearview mirror, like on the actual wiper on my back mirror, or not mirror, my back window? And I was looking at Mally. I said, you see that something's sitting there? And she goes, yeah, something's on it. And I turned it on once, and it stayed on. I'm like, what's on? What is on my window? And so we pull up to the school, and I said, Mally, just go take whatever's on the window and bring it to me, right? 
And so she runs to the back, and she grabs it, and she gives it to me. Now, think about this, okay, because you already know what it is, right? This is like uh, almost 30 years later. I have this vision on a Thursday or a Friday. I preach on the Sunday, and I don't talk about it. But I drive Mally to school on the Tuesday, and she hands me a chick track with that exact image in it. Isn't God amazing? He is on the throne. He is a God who cares about every need, everything in our lives. And he has these unique ways of showing it. And as a seven-year broken boy, I can see the handprint of God all my life. He's so beautiful. And so despite where you're at today, I know he's there. I know he's there. All right, Pastor Mark, come on up. All right, this morning we're going to start with something. I mean, when I come back from a, a trip, especially something like this Egypt trip, there's always a lot of, of uh, requests, like what happened, what, what, what went on. You know, the, uh, the inspirational thing for me, first of all, was the responsiveness of the Egyptians, not having ever been largely uh, to a gathering, not being familiar with most of these expressions. They just intuitively, boom, stepped in. Uh, with joy. Now you could argue, I suppose, that okay, it's very easy to do one something once. I mean, there's very kind of exciting the discovery process of doing it the first time, and maybe it's harder to do it the tenth time than it is the first time, and probably that's our struggle in some respects. But there's also the 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 middle part there, which was so powerful, and if and I think more of us should maybe go to the next global gathering, but. But to get the sense of the significance of the moments uh, in terms that they are, there is a valid prophetic intercession, something happening here that, that is accomplishing something for the kingdom of God. Because as I said, we did that, you know, pulling in the harvest for about 20 minutes. And then all of a sudden, you know, after a little while, there's about 25, 30 others on the stage doing it. And then, then somebody got up and actually orchestrated and called us the whole conference. But there was about 1,200 people to go to the, do that towards the north and the south and the east and the west. So the whole event moved. But it was stimulated by the obedience of this woman who was not endorsed to do that. So she was risking something by going up. You know, she thought, well, who am I? She could have said, well, who am I? It's up to the leader's you know, to, to decide. Maybe I'll just, you know, say something to somebody, and if they don't like it, I, you know, I'll go back to my seat, and I'm, I'm discharged from my responsibility. But she took a risk. She went up where she wasn't supposed to go and turned the course of the event. And so just a little classic example of how the obedience of the individual in a corporate setting like that is significant. Likewise, in this smaller setting here, Every one of our obedience is important, and, and it doesn't have to be in front to be valuable. And so, but uh, one of the things that was really powerful was when I see in these environments the ability for people to do something that's a little odd for prolonged periods of time. You know, because you remember the time when uh, the prophet told the king of Israel, said, said take the arrows and strike the ground? And so he said, uh, okay. Uh, and he struck the ground. What, how many times did he strike it? Two, two three times? And, and then the prophet was mad. He said, you should have struck four or five times, right? So first of all, uh, he was expecting him to intuitively discern that he should have struck more times. 
And he was angry at him, rebuked him for not striking more times, uh, which, which sets up a precedent right there. You shouldn't have to. When we are spirit-led, we don't have to be told how to engage or what to do. Okay, that we're trying to get to a place of being spirit-led so that we naturally engage with these things. So there's a place we can get where we sort of feel the pocket of spiritual things and then just go with the flow. The beautiful thing around the gatherings is the patience, whereas people, and I think the king, I can identify with the king. He probably felt a little awkward, you know. He probably wasn't used to getting down on his knees. He probably didn't think, you know, this, you know, you know, you prophets are odd, but, I mean, this is really weird. You know, what's the point of me hitting the ground with arrows? And the prophet says to him, listen, whether you win or lose, whether Israelis die or other people die in the battles being determined by how many times you strike the ground as to whether you feel comfortable with this or not. I mean, think about that. Your destiny is being decided by your relative awkwardness around prophetic acts. Wow. Maybe we should get over ourselves. Right? So, uh, so the beautiful thing about the gatherings that inspires to me is, is the patience of staying in those pockets and, wa- and, and walking them through and not... Oh, you know, I'm embarrassed, or I'm shy, or I'm self-conscious. And um, so anyway, there was all kinds of other repentance and, and, and whatnot that was there as well. It was, it was a powerful time. Um, but the question is, to what end? What, what was the purpose of such an event? And the first day I was there, I got a word which I was able to, uh, on the third day to share uh, that was... Um, Essentially this, that God is looking for a corporate Esther. God is looking for a corporate Esther. What the gathering's about, essentially, they're not so much an equipping. Though you can take video and you can watch and you can learn and you can, you know, you can actually pull a lot of teaching out of what happens in the, uh, the various stages through the worship, through the intercessions, through the leadership, through the sharing, through the uh, discernment meetings. Uh, you know, there's so much you can learn. However, it's not, it's, it's not orchestrated as a teaching sit down, one person speaking and everybody else listening and, you know, gleaning from that. It is meant to be uh, a corporate Esther. Now, let me say about something about Esther. I think most of us are familiar with Esther, but I'm going to just give you a quick overview. I'll try to read some of the scripture. But basically, Esther was a Jew. And if you go to the beginning of the book of Esther, you should read it. It's only like 12 chapters or something like that. Uh, uh, she becomes, through a series of events, she becomes the new queen to the king. It's not a Jewish king. It's uh, you know they're 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 not in uh, in in Israel. They're in in captivity or in Babylon or yeah, and uh, so uh, he, she becomes the new queen, and then this plot is uncovered that there's this man named Haman, who's got a hate on for her uncle or her cousin Mordecai. So Mordecai uh, is Esther's cousin, and there's this plot that is devised. Haman hates Mordecai because Mordecai is not honoring Haman the way he likes. So Haman devises this plan. He's a significant government official in, in the, uh, in the um, administration there. And so he devises this plan that on one day he's going to have every Jew in the land killed. Hey, it's been done before, right? <laughs> Isn't that strange that, you know, how many times that plan seems to come up in the, in the heart of hateful people? Yeah, we haven't seen the end of that. 
Um, so uh, this is this uh, this is unfolding behind the scenes. And when Mordecai discovers it, he comes to Esther and he says to her basically this: he says, "Listen," he said, "You're in the in 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 the palace and you're protected, but don't think that you're really protected." Because uh, you need to stand up. You need to do something right now. Who knows that God didn't bring you into the palace for such a time as this? And so uh, Esther de- you know, decides that, okay, I need to do something about this. So the first thing she does, right, is three days Esther fast, which is nothing for three days, right? No, no water, no food. I wouldn't recommend it. It's not a, it's not a fun time. Right? It's great to have, you know, juice or, you know, milkshakes, just not solid food. Right? That, that's, that's how some of us fast. Milkshakes and juice. Anyway, uh, so nothing at all. And what, what, what is Esther doing? What is a fast about? The first stage of what Esther does is she's appealing to God. She's appealing to God. She's looking for wisdom. But so she begins prayer and fasting. So there's a, if we want to be a corporate Esther, there's going to be an element of, of prayer and fasting. But essentially, her relationship with the king sort of is a microcosm or a picture of our relationship as the body of Christ, the corporate Esther with our king. And she, she devises a plan, gets a wisdom from God on how to approach the king to foil this plan. Now, we are meant to be that corporate Esther. That is, there is a plan to destroy us, in case you didn't realize it. You know, there is a lion that's uh, uh, prowling around seeking whom he may devour. You know, uh, what, did, what did Jesus say about the prince of this world? He's coming, but he has nothing in me, and when he's coming, he's coming to destroy. He's coming to kill and to destroy. He said, I've come to, come to give life, but the, your enemy is coming to destroy you. And so we have this enemy who's plotting all the time. And, you know, sometimes we, uh, we, we, we survive that plotting. Sometimes we prosper in the midst of that. But the, the strategy of God is this, that there is a God and there is an enemy and there is us. And we are God's Esther in the moment. How do we see this plan foiled by, and it's by our approach to the king? So what we're going to see here as we look at what Esther did, we're going to see kind of a template of what the gatherings are and a template of what we need to do for our city and for our region to see the blessing of God, to see the kingdom of darkness pushed back, to see the plans and the agendas of the enemy unfoiled and dismantled and turned on his own head. Because essentially, that's what happened with Esther. At the end of the day, the gallows that Haman was preparing for Mordecai and the Jews were used to hang Haman himself. In case you didn't know the end of that. It's a good story. So, let's see how this plays out. Turn to uh, Esther chapter 5. It says, now it happened on the third day, this is after the fast, Uh, it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house, while the king sat at his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of his house. Now, 
She comes there and she's taking a risk because the truth is she's not allowed to just present herself before the king. Anybody who does that could be killed. And so he has to extend his scepter to her. So this is the risk that she's taking. You know, if he's not happy, if he's in a bad mood, if, you know, if she doesn't find favor in his sight, she's dead. Okay, so she does this, she's there. Verse 2. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. Wow, hallelujah. Favor. And this is our position with God right there. Our position is we have favor with the king. All right. Now, you know, Esther, who knows what may have transpired in her personal life that week. You know, maybe... Maybe, maybe she wasn't the perfect queen. Maybe she wasn't the perfect, you know, uh, subject. Maybe she wasn't, uh, it, but it didn't matter because she had favor in the sight of the king. And likewise for you, uh, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the blood of Jesus gives us access to God, basic access. We have favor with God such that when we draw near to God, you know, it says in Hebrews, you can draw near with what? Boldness, right? With audacity, with, you know, hey, Dad. I mean, not flippantly, but with a, a sense of confidence. Like, you know, my kids don't need to, uh, you know, maybe I should have made them more fearful of entering my presence. But, but you know, they kind of, you know, they sort of take you for granted, right? Because they feel like that they have that access to you. And so we have that access to God. So Esther has this basic level of favor and here established that she comes in. And, 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 and so we see the depth of that favor here in, cha- in verse 3. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? Wow, that's great. We've already won. It shall be given to you up to half of the kingdom. Half of the kingdom. You know, Esther could have just stopped right there, right? Well, in that case, hey, there's this guy, but she understands she needs more than basic favor, all right? Because this thing, she doesn't know, this plot, uh, the, the, uh, the, the degree that it's sort of filtrated into the kingdom, into the king's administration, into, you know, the other... Uh, governors of the land, you know, how far has this gone? Like, what, how deep is this? How much disfavor is, is meant towards the Jews right now? Has he already talked to Haman? I mean, I mean, uh, uh, has, has this, wh- where are the wheels going in terms of this? So she doesn't know. She needs massive favor. She needs a, you know, an overwhelming kind of favor. So she doesn't say, well, take care of this thing for me. What does she do? She ignores the need that Israel has right now. And she says, I've made a banquet for you, O king. And this is what she says. Look it. Uh, she says, so Esther answered. says, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for him. So a banquet, a banquet for the king and a banquet for Haman. Haman's side note here, but she is blessing the king. She is ministering to the king. King's hungry. Kings often get hungry. And, you know, and, uh, and so she, she's, she's actually appealing to the heart because what she, she's not just looking to have her, her request satisfied. She is. I mean, that's the end goal. But she knows what she needs to do 
is to open the heart of the king. Let me say that again. What the queen is trying to do is to open the heart of the king. And, and what a gathering is about, these conferences, they are not equipping. They are not for, for uh, you know, displaying our particular gifts or our talents. They are a corporate collective gathering of a people coming together for the, for the purposes of God, for a district, for a nation to say, God, we need your heart opened because there is a plan in the land devised to destroy us. And the only way to overcome this is not just having an answer to prayer, but we need your heart open towards this land. We need your goodwill released. And so what they do, what, they're do- what she's doing is she's, she's you know, going through his stomach to his heart. And I'm sure there's other things, right? There's pretty, pretty damsels. There's pageantry. There's music. There's, there's you know, uh, you know, Esther in all her splendor and beauty. And so, uh, great, great event, right? You know, it's obviously probably pretty successful. So now, for a second time, the king says to her, "This." Then the uh, and at the banquet. Of wine, the king said to Esther, verse 6, What is your petition? Well, that's the second time he's asked it, right? What is your petition? It will be granted you. What is your request? Up to half my kingdom, and it shall be done. Wow, this is great. This is a great opportunity. And Esther's, but Esther, you know, she's. She, not only she has wisdom from the Lord, but she's navigating something. She's looking for something even better than an answered prayer. This is still in the realm of petition. I want the king's heart. I want the king's heart. And this is, this is, this is part of the mindset that God is trying to shift in us today, you know, because oftentimes our relationship with God is kind of one-sided in that, you know, God's our sugar daddy. God is the, God is the one we go to. You know, we have all those prayers and, and uh, all those scriptures about answered prayer. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it for you. And if two or three agree uh, touching this thing in heaven and earth, you know, it's going to be done for you. And if you do this and this and this according to my will, da 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 And, you know, we have all these promises that our petitions will be answered and our requests will be will be looked upon with favor if 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 and so we're always thinking you know a lot of the navigation of our life is i want to stand in right favor enough with god to get my petitions answered and that's that's often all we can sort of get we just can't get past the idea of having a heart to heart relationship with god Rather, we're just trying to stay clean enough that he's not mad enough so we can ask for things. There's this picture here of a people who tap into the deep of, of God, the tap into the deep of the king and say, I don't just want you to be my sugar daddy. I want your, the fullness of your goodwill. Now, Esther believes that there's something in there, that there's something to be tapped into that's greater than just a petition and this is what the gatherings are about. These are what these events are about. We are coming to wait upon God so that his heart opens up. Now, I was trying to find, and I know there's probably some other scriptures, but if you read Revelations, one of the things you're going to see is the orientation of heaven 
towards God. I'm telling you that, that heaven is singularly focused on God. All right? I mean, there's a lot of things that happen for a lot of people. There's a lot of things going on. But the orientation of heaven is God-centric. And, and that is synonymous with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will always have the qualities of God-centricness. The kingdom of darkness is manifested in man-centric or other-centric things. And so what we have in the, is the kingdom of darkness is, is uh, you know, how many people on the earth? Seven billion? Yeah, seven billion centers. Seven billion saying, uh, come together over me. Even if they don't know the song. Right? It's, it's, it's minister to me. Take care of me. My, you know, I have this black hole at my core, and I'm sucking in as much as I can. And, and my security and my fulfillment is optimal, you know, the only thing I really think about. Well, that's, that causes the very manifestation of the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of heaven is manifested when God is the only vortex. When God is that center. And because with God, it's not a, a, a taking from you, kind of taking your energy, taking your love. It is, it is a giving. It is a centric. There is a gravitational pull towards God. But when you get trapped in that gravitational pull, you realize it's all about love. And so... So there is a kind of Christianity that God is taking the church to that manifests what is in heaven but here on earth, where everything is about pleasing him, pleasing his heart. So uh, John's Revelation, chapter 5, verse 5, says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now, I don't know what numerical number is. Yeah, we can figure out a part of that, but it's the end thousands of thousands, which is an unquantifiable number of thousands. And they're all gathered around the throne. And they're saying, all ten thousands time ten thousands and the thousands of thousands. And they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain. I'll tell you what they're not doing. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. Worthy is the lamb. Are we almost done here? I, you know, I'm kind of hungry. I, you know, I, I, I got to get back to my house. I got some repairs I need to do. I, I got to. There, there is this this yieldedness that's in heaven that is not on earth. You know, a part of what what's God's trying to create in us, and it's not a legalistic thing. It doesn't mean you don't have needs. But here's the question: Can we ever, ever? Fully focus on God, and that was. Can I can I confess something? That was the first thing I discovered as I was starting to worship God. When God was starting to demand more worship from me, I started realizing, man, the the amount of bandwidth I'm giving to God is so very narrow. You know, it's like it's like I got so much. When's my turn happening? 
And even in the moments, even, and uh, you know, I thought I was doing a great job at first because I, you know, I started lifting my hands and I started dancing. I thought, you know, this is great. It's abandonment. Here I am dancing. But then I, you know, when God gave me that first sort of uh, uh, check to see where my heart was, I realized I was doing all those things, seemingly honoring him. But the whole time it was like, hey, you guys must be really be impressed with how full-hearted I am in my worship. Look at the abandonment with which I am giving myself to God. You guys who are not doing this really should take notes because this is what should be happening. Right? Have you ever caught yourself? You're singing and glorifying God. And you're thinking, man, I could really sing. You know, man, that was, I, I must be getting better. I, I, I could, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe I have a career in music. You know, and 20 minutes later, glorify thy name. You, you realize you lost 20 minutes of worship toward God because you were caught up in the vortex of that black hole that's at the center of your being. Anybody ever have that experience? Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't have to feel bad about it. What, the point is what God is, is saying. He said, I'm going to have a people who can focus on me. It's, a, it's an aspect of maturity. What do you have when you have little kids? You know, you gotta, if you're going to teach them anything, you have to do it in bite-sized pieces, right? Say, you want a cracker? Here, do you want a candy? Okay, all right, say, please. Say, please. Right? You know, and you got this tiny little window of instruction. You know, you just I'm just for a half second going to try and take you out of that I want to please me mode. And that's our discipleship. That's how we train our kids. We, we're trying to get them to think about something other than the immediate needs before them. And maturity, maturity is getting to the place where you can ignore, you know, what you need. You put it off a little bit longer, a little bit further. Spiritually, that's what maturity is as well. When we get to a place where we're really actually genuinely conscious, God, what do you need? What can I do 